You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing A Death in Oslo. Hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm so excited to have you guys here. I wanted to first start off by saying thank you to all of those who wrote to me and sent me messages wishing me well. I can honestly say that I do feel a little bit better. I still feel like there's something going on, maybe like a kidney stone or something, but I am feeling a lot better. Thank you for all being so supportive and understanding of the situation. It's certainly not something I had planned on. I would obviously rather be researching and writing for the podcast for the podcast than, um, you know, passing a kidney stone or whatever, but I'm still waiting for the results. I know that last week I told you guys I had like to get an ultrasound or whatever, but they're pretty busy over there with everything that's going on. Um, but if you're really curious, I guess I can keep you in the know if you're interested at all in my bodily functions. Um, however, today we are going to be discussing a really interesting case. It's about a woman who comes to Oslo, Um, seemingly out of nowhere, and just a few short days later, she's found dead. And it's terrible. It's confusing. Um, It happened a really long time ago. This happened actually in 1995. So that just goes to show you how long they've been working on this case. Um, I do want to say that I don't have anything negative to say about this episode, but as I mentioned a few episodes back, there were a lot of reviews about the second volume of episodes from Unsolved Mysteries. People were, I don't want to say complaining, but some were mentioning that they thought a lot of the cases covered in this series, like the second volume, might have worked better with the old format of the show where they did like two 10-minute stories and one longer segment. Um, And I think that this might have been one of those cases that they were referring to. Um, I think that this case might have done better with the old format instead of a full hour. And it's not because I don't think that this case or this woman deserve like the airtime. It's simply and only because there's just not a lot of information. And the episode can seem a bit repetitive, almost like a little bit redundant at times. I think that while we're going through the episode, you'll see where I'm coming from. Um, They do repeat a lot of stuff. Uh, This podcast episode might be a little bit shorter than you're used to just because I'm not going to repeat all of the repetitions, if that makes sense, that they did. Um, But without further ado, let's dive in. This is the case, A Death in Oslo. We first hear from Lars Christian Wegner. He is a journalist who, after hearing about the case, became very intrigued by it, and he's going to be our guide throughout the episode. We don't know very much about the woman, even now. Um, We don't know who she is or where she came from or why she was even in Oslo in the first place, but we do know a few things, and those things are that on Wednesday May 31st, 1995, a very elegant woman checked into the Plaza Hotel. Now, the Plaza Hotel was at the time a very posh and swanky hotel where celebrities and royalty and, you know, 
those wealthy people <laughs> typically stayed. Um, she gets a room. She gets assigned room 2805 and she immediately places a do not disturb sign outside of her room and that sign remains there for the remainder of her stay. It wasn't until three days into her stay that someone, I don't know who, but someone down at registration realizes that whoever checked her in never got a card, like a credit card to hold the room. And they never took a copy of her passport. Uh, this hotel, like I said, it's really ritzy. They have a super tight security and they obviously don't want just anybody like wandering on the hotel and, you know, staying at the hotel for three days and then leaving without paying their bill. So they send up one of their security guards to knock on the door and let her know that they're going to need her credit card information. So one unlucky guard took the elevator up to the 28th floor. He gets to her door. He knocks on the door. And a moment later, he hears a single gunshot. Startled, obviously, he runs to the end of the hall and hides behind a door frame, waiting patiently to see if anyone is going to leave the room. He waits and he waits and he waits and no one comes out. So he doesn't have a walkie-talkie on him or anything. So he rushes down the 28 flights of stairs to get in touch with the supervisor. While he does this, the door goes unguarded for about 15 minutes. And as we know, a lot can happen in 15 minutes. And it's possible someone could have left the room during this time. And unfortunately, there were no cameras in the hallway um, to capture anything that might have happened during this window of time. The security guard and his supervisor return together. They knock and no one answers. The door was double locked from the inside. Um... And if you didn't know, security actually has a special tool that they can use to open up a door that's been double locked from the inside. So they use their tool, they get into the room, it's dim and quiet in there, and as they turn the corner, they see a woman lying on her bed, on her back, with a gunshot wound in her head. It is interesting to note that one of the guards remembers smelling an acidic smell upon entering the room. I'm not sure what that could potentially mean, but I think it's interesting to mention at least because maybe it will make sense to someone listening. Um, the supervisor tells his subordinate that now is about the time that they need to get the police involved. So they do pretty quickly. Soon the room is filled with police and federal government agents. Um, Adon Christensen notes that there is a gun in the woman's hand and a wound in her head. They say it seems like she had been kind of like quarantining herself in the room a bit um, because there's evidence that she hadn't really left the room very much or had anybody in the room with her. There was like a lot of um, room service, like a lot of plates and stuff in the room. Um, they could tell by the key card uh, data that she hadn't uh, entered her room very often and, and that no one had entered the room shortly before her death or anything. Uh, the thing is, is that from the key card information, they can only tell when people enter the room. But they can't tell when people leave. So they still don't know if someone had left during the window of time that no one was guarding the door. The police's theory is that she had spent a lot of time in her room, um, possibly contemplating what she was about to do, and their conjecture at this point is that she had killed herself. Um, in fact, in an article that our journalist friend Lars presents, 99.9 of the officers who worked on the case were convinced that this was a suicide. However, when initially, initially, however, when investigators combed through the room, they looked through her things and they found 
nothing. No ID card, no passport, no wallet, no like home key or car key, which are all things that someone would bring with them when they're traveling. In fact, in order to stay anywhere in Norway and anywhere in Europe, you have to have your passport. So the fact that these things cannot be found anywhere in the room struck them as pretty odd. More weird for me, at least, is that there wasn't a toothbrush or cosmetics or toiletries, which no shade to the dead, obviously, but I hope that she wasn't in her hotel room for three days and didn't brush her teeth. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and hope that someone might have stolen the toothbrush because they didn't want any DNA evidence left behind. I don't know what the meaning behind a missing toothbrush would be other than gross um, because like her body's still there. So if they're trying to like, oh, I don't want them to get DNA evidence, like her body's there. Hello, there's blood in it. Anyways, I don't know. The officers looked through her clothes and all of the label tags had been removed, which doesn't mean that she was murdered per se. I mean, she definitely could have been one of those people who thought tags were itchy and bothersome. So obviously entirely possible that she removed those tags by herself. Um, But the labels on her shoes were even removed. So that to me is a bit weird. They also found it strange that she had packed a lot of tops and blouses and jackets, but not very many bottoms. I don't really know why they found this so unusual. I thought that that was a pretty typical thing for when people are packing. You bring just a few bottoms and a ton of tops so that you can make your outfit stretch without having to pack all those bulky bottoms, but they thought it was super weird, so that's why I'm mentioning it. Um, Is that weird to any of you? Do you usually pack more tops than bottoms like me? Maybe me and this mystery girl are weird in that sense. I'm thinking about maybe doing a poll on the Instagram and you guys can let me know. Maybe I'm a weirdo, which I suppose I already knew, but I thought it was I was a weirdo for different reasons. <laughs> okay, so while she hadn't um, presented a credit card or a passport upon arrival to the hotel, she had filled out a registration card. She identified herself as Jennifer Fairgate. She had written down some telephone numbers and she claimed her address was a home in a super teeny tiny village in Belgium. So of course, Norwegian police took the steps to notify the Belgian police um, that one of their citizens had died so that they could properly notify any family living there. However, it didn't take long for both Belgium and Norwegian police departments to discover that there was no family to notify because no such person existed. The name, telephone numbers, and address had all been falsified. This takes them back to square one. So they call the ME and they go and they take fingerprints. They run these fingerprints through Interpol and unfortunately they didn't get any hits. It was concerning to the police because now they worried that this might be something other than a suicide. Apparently a few days before Jennifer, and I'm going to continue to call her Jennifer even though that's not her name, but that's like the only name that I have to refer to her to, unless I just want to keep calling her the woman. And I think she deserves a little bit more than that. So I will call her Jennifer. So Jennifer checked in and she called to add another person to her reservation. Um, the name that she gave was a man named Louis Louise. And that name was also marked down the registration card. However, one of the front desk operators stated that when she checked in, Jennifer seemed to be alone. She did mention that a man was kind of standing like off to the side, but 
after that, she never sees him again. So she's not really sure if he was with her or not. Um, security cameras were never searched. So it's not really known if he truly existed or not. Lars says that there are so many unanswered questions regarding this case, which is what originally drew him to the story. The real question is, of course, who is she? What's her identity? They had always hoped that a missing persons report would turn up that would match the description of their Jane Doe or that a news story would reach her family or friends and someone would come forward. But to this day, 25 years later, no one has claimed Jennifer. We know she's not Jennifer Fairgate, so who is she? For the next few weeks, they treated her death as a homicide, but after a while, they resumed back to their original theory that she was a depressed woman who had entered the hotel with the sole intent of eventually taking her own life. The Oslo police um, kept her body for one year, you know, just really hoping that they'd be able to identify her, but after a year, they decided to hold a funeral for her and finally lay her to rest. It was a super small funeral, and in fact, it was more or less a f- not really a funeral, um, but more just like a formality. There weren't any guests. There wasn't even a priest. There was only a few police officers who had volunteered to be pallbearers. The police officer said it was the saddest and loneliest funeral they had ever attended. This is when Lars actually steps into the picture after she's buried. He apparently was already uh, writing missing person stories for a newspaper in Oslo at the time. And when he learned of her funeral, he felt like this was a story that he needed to do. He thought to himself, you know, I have the time, I have the resources, I have the drive and the determination to take this story farther than it's been taken previously. So he decided to take on finding out who she was. Lars tells us at Jennifer's grave that his main motivator for discovering who she is is being able to purchase a headstone with her actual name on it. He hopes to help her find the rest that she may be seeking. Many people ask him why this is so important to him. He answers that all life matters to him and he believes her family deserves to know what happened to her. For years, notes on Jennifer were kept in his desk. He would research it whenever he had time. He wanted to keep her story alive and on the public's mind. He wanted to get the story spread as widely as possible because the further it goes, the more likely it is that this case will be solved. Lars travels to Verlaine, Belgium. The population right now, like right now, is 4,000 people. So I can only imagine what it might have been in 1995. Lars was happy to discover that this town actually exists. Um, That was a worry for a lot of people that she might have just made up a fake town to go along with her fake identity. And the street that she claimed to live on is a real street in Verlaine. So this was all giving Lars some hope. While Lars doesn't believe she ever actually lived there, he says that she must have had a connection to this town somehow. Maybe a family member lived there or a friend or a roommate because you don't just know all the information that she knew about it without ever stepping foot there or at least knowing somebody that lived there because a lot of people in Europe don't even know that Verlaine exists. So he goes to Verlaine and he has this mindset that this is going to be easy After all, this is a tiny town. They're just going to show her picture around to some people. And if people recognize her, then they'll know that she's from there. And if not, they'll know she wasn't. 
Lars goes to the house of the man who was the mayor back in 1995. His name is Hubert Janet. Hubert says he lived, he has lived in Verlaine all of his life. He was born there. He's actually lived in the same neighborhood his whole life. In fact, he even purchased a home right next door to his parents' house. He grew up knowing the people and loving them, and that's how he was able to become mayor after all. Um, Lars shows Hubert a sketch of Jennifer and asks, do you ever remember seeing this woman around in the 90s? And Hubert says her image does not ring a bell. And while he wishes he could help and give some useful information, sadly, the image means absolutely nothing to him. And in such a tiny town, if she had been from there, I think people would have remembered. The address Jennifer wrote down on her registration card was a street called Rue de la Station, um, house number 148. Lars is walking down the street, going over the houses, and he sees 98, 99, 100, and then the houses just stop. There are no house numbers larger than 100. So while the city is real and the street is real, the house is not. We can't fault Jennifer and her attempt to conceal her true identity. She did her research and found a small, obscure, obscure village and street. She even wrote down a fake phone number that was consistent with the phone numbers in Verlaine. And it's not like she just pulled these random numbers out of her butt. She really knew what she was doing. She did make a critical error in just guessing that the home addresses on Rue de la Station went larger than 100, which we now know they did not. Lars leaves Verlaine in the same predicament that he was in before, not being any closer to identifying who she is. Lars says it's certainly discouraging at times like this to continue working on the case. Sometimes he feels like he is chasing a ghost. Lars is confused that while this story has been broadcasted in several languages for the last 25 years, no one has ever come forward. He says surely she must have had family, friends, cousins, employers, roommates, lovers who would see the image and recognize her. But if anyone has recognized her, they're not coming forward. And he wonders why that could be. All right, I'm going to go off script, so hold on to your butts, but I wonder if she had gone through all the trouble to conceal her identity by researching random little towns and phone numbers and addresses. I don't think it would be too far-fetched to believe that she also could have altered her identity as well. Now, whether she did that because she felt like she was in danger, or if she did it so her family and friends, if they heard the story about a woman who committed suicide in a hotel, wouldn't recognize the description, I don't know about that, but... The woman had a dark pixie cut. What if she had recently gotten it cut and died so that no one knew or associ would associate that description with being her? Maybe Jennifer is really a long-haired blonde to her friends and family, and that's why they're not coming forward. I don't know. Just something to think about, I guess. Also, another um, interesting thing mentioned by police is that Jennifer had been found freshly showered and in, like, going out for the night clothing. She was dressed all in black with tights and she even had heels on. They claim it didn't look like someone who was planning on killing themselves, but we have to keep in mind that mental illness is such a tricky and terrible disease of the mind. And if she did indeed take her own life, it seriously just, if that's really what happened, it breaks my heart to know that she was basically getting nicely dressed and making herself look presentable and doing that for whoever would find her. That just makes me really sad. 
The weapon used in either her homicide or her suicide, it should be noted that the Emmy's report still says undetermined, uh, was a 9mm semi-automatic Browning pistol. I don't know much about guns, but apparently it's a pretty powerful weapon. But something odd was that while there was next to nothing in her briefcase, there was a lot of bullets packed inside, 25 cartridges to be exact. Police note that this seemed very unusual because people don't really need that many bullets to kill themselves. Um, so why did she have so many with her? Maybe she was afraid of somebody. Lars says that she was a tiny woman and that she had small hands. When she was found, she had her hand around the gun, but it wasn't in an, in the usual way that somebody would hold a gun. Um, she had an unusual grip. The thumb was found on the trigger, so like the opposite of what you'd normally do. And apparently holding the gun in that way would more than likely fling it across the room when you pulled the trigger, and you probably wouldn't be able to hold on to it. The recoil is apparently pretty intense on these things. So this leaves room for investigators to wonder if the gun was perhaps placed in her hand after the fact. We speak to chief pathologist Toriv Ole Rognam, and he provides us with some very interesting tidbits of information. He tells us that this could be a suicide. However, there were no blood spots on her hand, and in every suicide case he's ever researched, there is always blood spots and residue on the hands, and there aren't any on hers. Now, there's blood spots all over the wall and all over the ceiling, but none on her hands. Anybody else find that weird? Because I certainly do. He says we should not rule out homicide in this case, as that is what he believes that it has to be. Some people wonder if this wasn't in fact a suicide, then how come she doesn't seem to have any defensive wounds on her body? Lars tells us that it's possible she was drugged or unconscious at the time of her death. Someone asks, well, wouldn't they have figured that out in her toxicology report because a toxicology report was conducted? However, Lars informs them and informs us that the only substance that was tested in her toxicology report was alcohol. So it's entirely possible that she was subdued and overpowered. Now Lars starts talking to us about the timeline that they were able to put together using the keycard data. As we know, Jennifer apparently spent a lot of time in her room. However, the day before her death, maids came in to clean the room around 1 p.m. and Jennifer was not there. In fact, Jennifer did not return to her room until the next morning. So she had been gone from her room for like 20 hours. Where had she been and what had she been doing? Because that's just not like I'm going shopping or going on a date. That's like, did she know somebody? Did she stay the night at a lover's house or a friend's house? Or was she seriously just wandering the streets of Oslo for 20 hours? Was she an escort, a secret agent, a drug trafficker, an assassin? Apparently, Israeli and Palestinian organizations were secretly meeting in the Plaza Hotel, negotiating their peace treaties at the exact time Jennifer was staying there, and some wonder if it could be connected to her death. Now we meet a man named Ola Kaldager, and I'm probably butchering his name, but he's a group leader from the Norwegian Intelligence Services. I think he's retired, and he gives us some really, really fascinating information on how secret organizations work. He says that his expertise before retiring was with war and crisis. He basically specialized in getting people to say things when they don't want to say anything. Okay, Ola, I see you. You were and still are a scary dude. Ola seems nice now, but I certainly would never want to get on his bad side. 
Ola doesn't play games. <laughs> Lars is speaking with Ola, and he thinks it's really curious that no one has ever come forward to claim knowing her. Ola says that he does not believe Jennifer killed herself. With the information that he's gathered researching the case, he fully believes that this was a professional hit carried out on Jennifer. Why? He doesn't know, but he says that the case is a classic textbook case of how a secret organization would go about doing such a thing. I think that Lars is not excited when he's hearing this stuff from Ola, but he does certainly feel validated, I think. Olai says it's more or less possible to shoot herself using the grip that she used without blood spatter and without the gun not flying out of her hand. He just doesn't think that that's possible. He also says that the registration number was removed on the gun precisely so that the numbers would not be able to be recovered. He claims that only professionals would know how to accurately remove these numbers and like know how far to go. Um, Ola says in his line of work, it's common for all intelligent services to remove labels from clothing because you are trying to rid the person of all identifying marks so that police can't trace the clothing back to stores or a certain country. Um, Jennifer had been absent from the hotel for a really long stretch of time, 20 hours, and he says that this is common to have a second location that a person can go to if they feel that their position has been compromised and then when it's safe, they can return. Um, the fact that the door was double locked, Ola says that means nothing. He says it's not closed for intelligences and that they would have been able to unlock it and lock it back up again after they left with no problem. It's part of the game. This is his quote. It's part of the game and they know what they're doing, which is equal parts fascinating and terrifying. He said whichever agency did this, they cleaned up afterwards. He believes that the agency she worked for or harmed her would have approached the family and told them, your loved one died a hero and here's a buttload of money to stay quiet about it. If she has a family, they are never going to come forward because they are being protected and taken care of on the condition that they keep their mouths shut. Lars says if this was not a secret intelligence, what else could it be? And Ola says that there is no way it's anything other than a professional hint, hit. And Ola is intense, so I'm going to believe him. Lars says that there are so many strange and peculiar things about this case, and he wonders if there's anything else he could possibly even do to help out. A few years ago, um, Jennifer's body was exhumed to get a hold of some DNA. They were able to get the DNA, and they found out that she was of European descent, which no surprise there, um, specifically Eastern German. And the woman who checked her in that night did say that she had detected a slight German accent. On the registration card Jennifer filled out, she claimed to be 21, but the ME says that she was more likely 30, give or take five years, which is kind of a huge discrepancy. Like, she's either 25 or 35. There's a big difference. Um, Lars decided to speak with a scientist, Heinrich Druid, who was testing and who is testing a new way to identify how old people are, um, specifically people living in Europe at the time that she was killed or killed herself. Apparently, during the Cold War between 1955 and 1963, there were above ground nuclear test bombs across the globe. Basically, all the detonations increase the levels of C-14 in the atmosphere, and by testing enamel, you can cut into a tooth and you can birth date an individual by testing the levels of C-14 in the tooth. It's kind of like rings on a tree. 
After doing this, they were able to identify that she was about 24 years old, which I guess that me was right. It was between 25 and 35. Lars says that this information brings them closer to finding, maybe finding out who she really is. Lars began working at Europe's largest newspaper. They have a reach of 10 million people, and he printed a story um, about Jennifer, hoping to get more information. They got a lot of tips, which is super encouraging, but unfortunately, nothing has been able to help out so far. Lars says that after all these investigations, that the only way that this case is going to be solved is if someone comes forward claiming to know her and giving them some information, somewhere to go from, because without that, the mystery is never going to be solved. I so appreciate people like Lars so much. People who dedicate their lives to serve others, someone he doesn't even know. He never knew her in life. And he just wants to keep continuing to bring her story to the forefront. And he is literally an advocate for her. I just appreciate Lars so much. And I, I love his willingness to do this. I'm sure that it takes up a lot of his time, um, but he loves doing it. And I, I think that's awesome. Um, I think sometimes we can be bombarded with negativity when it comes to the news, but it makes me so happy that there are still great, amazing people out there like Lars and like um, Ola, who was willing to talk with Lars and the scientists and the police department. Um, I just think that it's so awesome that there's still great people out there who are willing to serve others. If you have any information regarding the, this case, and if you know Jennifer's true identity, hop on over to unsolved.com and leave a tip. So what do you guys make of this case? Do you have any theories? I am really drawn to the theory that she was executed by a secret organization. And for whatever reason, I don't know why she would have been, but she was taken out by this secret organization. And the reason for that is I'm really drawn to all of the evidence that Ola presented. I don't know, everything he said just, it just made a lot of sense to me. And he seems like he's really knowledgeable and he knows his stuff. So I think when in regards to this case, I'm putting all of my trust and all of my faith and all of my cards into Ola. Make sure that you visit the Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved and you let me know what you guys think happened, what you make of the whole story, what your theories are. I would love, love, love to hear them. And don't forget to join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>